you know, I, had, I thought I was going to begin asking about how was your Black Friday or, <laughs> or at least your Thanksgiving meal. Some of you celebrated Thanksgiving on Thursday. But, you know, that song just sort of launches us right into our subject this morning, uh, the pursuit of glory. So I'll just go ahead and ask the big question. How do you define glory? What's glorious to you? Is it about honor, beauty, great achievement? What comes to your mind when you think of glory? Maybe it's a beautiful sunset or a landscape. Maybe it's an award or a distinction that someone receives, or for somebody else, it might be a rhapsodic piano concerto or a choir number what, like what we just listened to. And somebody else will say it's a thrilling football match between your favorite team and their rival, yeah? Or perhaps a fantastic spread of dishes for Thanksgiving. And if you haven't had it yet, we're going to have it on December 6th all together here. And you can't imagine the international spread that we're going to enjoy that day. I admit that this weekend, anyway, I'm remembering the glory of a year ago. I wink at my consuegros here. <laughs> when we celebrated our youngest son's wedding their second daughter's wedding, and the nostal nostalgia just floods my soul. What a glorious moment it was. It was the culmination of such a long wait, and the bride and groom were so lovely. Their parents, so elegant. <laughs> and to have all six of our grandchildren here for that together for that delightful event was just a really uh, an emotional high. Thank you, Andrew. So as I've, I've anticipated this anniversary of that glorious event, my mind has been whirring with a book project that I've been thinking about and working on, and which I thought I would entitle In Pursuit of Glory until I discovered that this title has already been used for several books <laughs> and, and a board game <laughs> about sports and about war. That's what's glorious to this world. Well, maybe they already stole my title, but not my idea, because it's about three of my grandchildren as they get enmeshed in a search for glory. Of course, I'll have to do a sequel about the other three grandchildren. You know, got to have equal time here. But this is about the younger three. And in the book, the oldest is, ca is cast as a bookworm. And the middle one is a natural scientist. And the youngest is a philologist. And I assure you, they are all typecast according to their true life personalities. Uh, nine, six, and four, the ages. 
And in the book, each one thought he or she would be the first to discover the greatest glory on earth. But as they begin to work through their research, they find that they need each other's insights to be able to unlock the overall mystery. So they begin to collaborate, to work together. So anyway, today's message is sort of the backstory behind their explorations and research. It's the scriptural context for it all. And of course, this part is no mere fantasy. Uh, this is the revelation from God that they were working through. And we start with the Old Testament conceptions about glory, going all the way back to Abraham, shall we say, whom the Bible says was glorious in livestock, silver, and gold. That's literally the term it uses, even though your translation may say he was rich in all these things, but actually the Hebrew word here is kabod. He was glorious. Uh, kabod in the Hebrew designated a real value according to the weight. So the foundation of this human glory was related to riches, obviously, something measurable, although it did have implications for one's social position and power. And there we might think of Joseph when he revealed himself to his brothers and told them to go back to his father and tell them all about the glory that Joseph had in Egypt because he was glorious in riches and in power, authority, second in command after Pharaoh, wasn't he? But of course, glory could also designate the splendor of beauty, as in Aaron's priestly robe, which Moses was instructed to make for him, or the glory of the temple, or the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of Lebanon. You see, glory could also indicate beauty. But then we remember poor old Job after he was ruined and humiliated, and he exclaimed, he has stripped me of my glory. He had no glory left. His riches, his wealth, his family, ruined. So anyway, we see here that this is all about an earthly standard of glory, isn't it? Human criteria. Well, the Israelites, according to this kind of glory, compared that of Saul with that of David in terms of their conquests and their battles, didn't they? You remember the ladies who came out singing that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Oh boy, that really irked Saul because he felt less glorious, didn't he? Mm. Is this any different from today's concept of glory? Doesn't this basically follow the same pattern? I mean, when you were a kid, guys, I can't speak for the women here, but didn't you play at war, whether with little figurines or actually with play guns and your playmates? I mean, wasn't that a pretty common thing to play at war? At least in my childhood, it was, whether it was cowboys and Indians and all kinds of things that would not be politically correct today, um, or identifying with this nation or that nation. And today, what do the kids do? They practice war even more horrifically. <laughs> they do it online with all these war games that 
goodness, I'd never even heard of, but somebody introduced me to some of these so that I would have some examples to give. Well, basically, this is the kind of glory that the Bible refers to as the glory of the flesh, isn't it? It's like the grass, here today, gone tomorrow. It's the glory of the dust. There's no substance to it, no permanence. So we realize immediately what a contrast to God's glory. God's glory is such a different story, isn't it? And the mystery is how that glory gets revealed and experienced in this world and in human life. And here's where we have to take note of something. This glory of God is seen by some and ignored by others. What's the difference? Hopefully it's coming to your mind. It's the faith factor, isn't it? Those who look with eyes of faith recognize this is God's glory here. And those who ignore faith, don't want to know anything about faith, they ignore that this glory is actually God's. It's being manifested. I think the night sky was one of my first major impacts that I received concerning God's glory. I can still remember when my older brother, he was eight years older than I, he would get our dad's old army cot from World War II. And so this was a long time ago, yeah. He would take, get that cot and take it out and put it in the field beside our house. And we would go out on a summer night and lie on that cot and just stare up into the sky. I was overwhelmed as a little four or five-year-old kid. My, just look at this huge expanse. I didn't have words to describe it. All those beautiful stars. We don't do that with kids anymore these days, do we? City kids don't get a chance. Too much city lights, too many city lights obstructing the view. A falling star. Oh, my goodness. Wow. What just happened? And then, of course, my brother was into the constellations, so he would show me, yeah, here's this one and that one. I would try to use my imagination. I was impacted very deeply. I can still remember that 70 years later. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? that our memory will last that long. Well, so God's glory is revealed, especially in nature's beauty and grandeur. And it's also revealed through the glory of God's image in you and me. And if we have eyes to see it, we can see it in each other. That's God's glory shining through. Oh, boy, I felt it during that song, God is all around. God is all around. We're all intended to be points of light, that glory flowing out from us, aren't we? And then especially through his presence and his movement among his people, revealed to those Israelites as Yahweh showed his power to deliver them from the oppression of Egypt, from the dangers of the desert, and from other predatory nations. And then when they came to Mount Sinai, God gave them a special privilege seeing something of his glory. 
You remember where it says in Exodus 24, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Some might just reduce it, oh, it was a volcano erupting. Um, I think there was something else going on there. <laughs> Eyes of faith or no faith. This was a strong motivation for God's people to worship. This was their God who was speaking to them, and he was showing them a display of power. And they worshiped, and they saw it. They also learned something about the fear of the Lord. This feels like the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> you get it, yeah? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Until we learn to fear Him, there is no wisdom, folks. There is no wisdom until we truly learn to fear Him. I don't think I learned that till well in my, into my adult years. I mean, they talked to me about it. But to really learn the fear of the Lord, I think it took me a while. <laughs> I was a slow learner maybe in some things. Anyway, so as Moses grew in confidence in his relationship with this powerful, glorious God of his fathers, he dared to make a very strange petition. He, he was sensing, this God listens to me. He responds when I talk to him, when I make a request. Ah, this God is trustworthy. So he became bold enough to ask God if he could see his glory. Hadn't he already seen it there on the mountaintop? Moses realized there was something more. It wasn't just about fire on the mountaintop. There was more too. There, was, there were depths to that glory that he wanted to see. That's very daring on his part. I hope you and I will take our example from Moses. God, I want to see your glory. It doesn't just mean, oh, I want to see you in this sunset, or I want to hear you in this concerto. There are depths to God's glory. We're going to get into them in just a moment. So God's response was, well, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim my name. Aha. Uh -huh. Two very important clues here about getting to know God's glory. And then he followed that up with, you, you can't see my face because no man can live if he sees my face. Mm. So the Lord s said, there's a place here near me where you can stand on the rock and my glory will pass by. I'll put you in the cleft of this rock, cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you can see my back. Because even the backside of God is glorious. But my face cannot be seen. So then in Exodus 34, in the next chapter, we see it happening. It's all unfolding as God declares his name before Moses. And he links that glory with these five adjectives that are basic to God's character. So as Yahweh passes before him and proclaims his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, he says those adjectives, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, great in loving kindness and faithfulness. 
And we should remember that last term is very tightly connected with truth. Truth and faithfulness just go together. Nothing in the whole universe could compare with that glory proclaimed in God's name and his character. Now, we know this is important because it doesn't just occur here in Exodus 34. You think, oh, well, it happened once. That's it. No, no. Three times in the Psalms, David will rehearse those same terms. In Numbers chapter 14, in the prophet of Joel, the prophet Jonah, in Nehemiah, and multiple times with just a couple of those, the first two or the last two would appear together. Just so many times you lose count. Repetition hermeneutically means pay attention. This is very important. Have we gotten it yet? And you see, Moses was so close to that glory, that pillar of fire for a considerable time, that you remember how he ended up with a radiating face. So that as he came down the mountainside, he didn't know the skin of his face was just shining because he'd been talking with the Lord. But Aaron and all the people of Israel saw it. And when they looked upon it, it frightened them to see Moses' face just shining like a light. So they were afraid to come near him. And later, he would put a veil over his face until it faded. There's the veil. Yeah. Wasn't the only time the God, that God's glory showed up in Israel. They had lots of evidence of that glory. For example, when they dedicated the tabernacle, God's glory invaded that tabernacle, consecrated that tabernacle, so that Israel should understand that they were going to be in service to that glory for the rest of their days. They would live out their pilgrimage in the desert under the influence and the guidance of God's glory, that pillar of fire and the cloud. So Israel began to develop its theology of glory as they came to understand generation after generation just how powerful and glorious this God was. Just a few generations later, David would write in Psalm 19 that the heavens themselves, what they're really declaring is the glory of God. And the firmament is proclaiming His handiwork. It's all just announcing Him and His glory. In the same way in 1 Kings, Solomon, David's son, would see the glory of God fill that temple, the temple that God allowed Solomon to build. David had the idea. Solomon got to build it. And when they dedicated it, again, just like at the tabernacle, God filled that temple with his presence, with his glory. So much so, the cloud was so dense that the priests had to leave. They couldn't see to carry out their duties. They had to go out because it was so dense. Generations later, you remember Isaiah in that temple. He would have a vision of that glory, wouldn't he? He would see it in a way that the, its holiness exposed the impurity 
of his own life, his nothingness, his fragility. And he would hear those seraphim declaring that all the earth is full of God's glory. Solomon had prayed for it. He desired it. But Isaiah recognized it. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Do we have eyes to see it? Here comes the sad part, however. Some centuries later, when Israel has continuously rebelled against God, refused to submit to his word, not returning to the Lord, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God, but his vision is that the glory of God is abandoning the temple. It's moving away. It's departing because of the people's sin. And if the glory of God abandoned the temple, it would only be a, a short time before the temple itself would be, would be demolished. Isaiah also has prophecies about this. That day when Israel would return from exile and the glory of God would accompany them. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 60. So Ezekiel also shared this vision regarding the return of the glory to the temple. He saw it leave, and he would have a vision of the glory coming back. So all through the second temple period, you realize the second temple, that's, that's not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, in all its grandeur, was destroyed by the Babylonians. So when the exiles came back from their exile returned to the land, they rebuilt the temple slowly but surely, and they finally got it rebuilt. And it couldn't compare with the glory of that first temple, but they had those prophecies that God's glory was going to come back and reside again in the temple. So there was this deep yearning for the Lord's glory to return, but it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen all the way to the prophet Haggai, who was still hoping for it. He says, I will, from the Lord, he says, I will make all nations tremble and the desired of all nations will come and he will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. But all through the Old Testament period, it never happened. And they were very aware that God's glory had not come back to sanctify this house. So we fast forward six centuries to the time of Jesus when the glory of God's presence among his people would actually be manifested personally in the glory of the Logos, the Word made flesh in Mary's Son, and announced one night on a Judean hillside when the angel of the Lord appeared to those shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And after the angel made his announcement of that Savior who was born unto them, those lowly shepherds, then a whole choir of angels joined him, singing, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So, Jesus would bring God's glory back to Israel. And in his ministry, he would fill Israel with the glorious works that his father had sent him to perform. 
In every sphere of life, he was showing God's character so that John would bear witness to him. In John 1, 14, he would talk about how that word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, you know, is he tabernacled among us. Uh, He pitched his tent in our midst as one of us. And John says, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that's two of those adjectives from the Old Testament creed. The loving kindness and faithfulness is translated into the Greek terms. So Jesus was manifesting his Father's glory all over Israel, all through his ministry. But on his final journey to Jerusalem. You may remember how he stops at the Mount of Olives with the temple in view, and he breaks into tears on behalf of that city. Because in spite of his ministry for at least three years, a bit more maybe, they had not been able to recognize the day of their visitation. The glory of the Lord had returned. He had come to his temple And he had not been received. It was tragic. But even so, later Jesus would enter that temple one last time to cleanse it one more time. Throwing out the money changers, the vendors, who in their pursuit of earthly glory couldn't see the heavenly glory right there in their midst. Think about it a moment. Jesus had warned the Jews that it's mutually exclusive to seek glory from other people and from God. Those two just don't match. He said, I don't accept glory from human beings, but you do. That's the only kind of glory you know. Jesus said that he had come in his Father's name, and yet they had refused to, to receive him. If somebody else came in someone else's name, they would receive him because they only knew about horizontal glory among each other. That's why Jesus said to them, how can you believe since you only accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God alone. You see, all they knew how to do was reinforce each other, pat each other on the back. Your sense of goodness is right on target. You are so righteous, self-righteous they were. And all they knew how to do was reinforce that with each other. Now, let's think about this for a moment, because all of us have a deep need for acceptance, for approval. It's the need to be loved and to love. We need that kind of communion and friendship that is actually part of God's image in us. That's what drives us toward relationship rather than just avoiding other people. God's image moves us to seek companionship, communion. But under the influence of sin, that same desire degenerates into a hunger to be admired, to be honored, even to be worshipped. It's just an attempt to gain personal value, glory. That's what the Bible would call it. So our, but actually, our personal value, our human dignity comes from the image of God in us. That's what makes us distinct. That's what gives us our worth. 
No one can take that from us. And yet, because of sin, that image in us is distorted. It's deficient. And hence, we have these feelings of, oh, I'm not any good, or I can't measure up to them, comparing ourselves with others. You see where that comes from? We've all experienced it maybe at some point or another. That comes from the deficit we feel because we've not accepted God's word, God's truth about us. He's the one who gives us our value. However we are made, however we may compare with those around us, each of us has his or her own value, God-given. So our tendency to try to fix the deficit on our own, try to satisfy that deficiency we feel, very strong, isn't it? Instead of turning to Christ, who's the one who can restore us, we try to do it ourselves, and we just complicate our sinful condition. Jesus is the only one who can fix our brokenness. Because he's the one who lived for the glory of his Father, not for his own glory. He knew that he was here thanks to his father, and he knew his worth was based totally on his father, so he didn't look to others for approval. He even said in his high priestly prayer that that same glory that God had given him, he was giving it to his followers, and he had given it to them. That means as we come to follow Jesus, we receive that glory to be able to accept ourselves the way God made us. I don't have to look to others for my approval. I get it from God. We, we preachers are especially susceptible to this kind of need. Eh? Anybody who comes and stands up in front, of some, um, in front of others, anybody who's in a leadership role has a special susceptibility, shall we say. Ooh, I can get glory from this crowd. I can feel really better about myself. Don't worry. God also has other ways of bringing us back down to uh, the, the earth, <laughs> getting our feet back in the dust. We're made of clay just like everybody else. Okay, so the revelation of Jesus' glory the disciples had been observing it all through his life, all through his ministry. Sorry, not through his life because they didn't know him until later, most of them. But in his ministry. And that glory they'd been observing in his ministry was just getting ready to explode into this huge meteor shower. But the disciples would not recognize it as glorious until after the resurrection. John's Gospel speaks of these Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. And for him, that was the clue immediately. He recognized it was the definitive sign that his time had come, the moment of true glory. Just like that of a seed that has to fall to the ground and die in order to bear fruit, because if it doesn't, it just remains a seed in the same way, Jesus knew that that's, that was his next step. And in John 17, 
that high priestly prayer that he prays before going to the cross was precisely, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before, and may you be glorified through me. That was the next step right there at the cross. That would be the occasion for that glory to be manifested to humanity. And you say, well, how is there glory in dying on a cross? Well, you have to look with eyes of faith beyond the surface. The kingdom of God was under its greatest attack there on that cross. The enemy, all his arms and weapons. So the kingdom of God was rising to its culminating point there as Jesus reigned on that wretched throne that he was given by humanity. He didn't despise it. He simply continued to reign and to establish his reign on earth in the midst of the most ferocious attacks from humans, from the hosts of Satan. But he remained unmovable. He remained a fortress of grace and forgiveness and unfailing love all through that experience. The crucifixion of the Lord of glory. That's what Paul says about that secret wisdom. It was hidden. Nobody could see it. Nobody could see this coming. If they had the rulers of this age, if they'd understood it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't see it. They were blind. It was the greatest tragedy of all human history, but at the same time, the most glorious moment of the whole cosmos. Well, you see, this is the moment, this is the point in the story that I'm writing about my grandchildren where I imagine them coming back on the scene of the crucifixion. Of course, this is in their Bibles as they work through it. This is the moment where they hear the voice of God declaring His name, declaring those Amazing adjectives that clarify God's character. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. And now they see what those words mean in flesh and blood. And they fall to their knees in awe, weeping. Because this was the answer to their search for glory. This was the highest glory in the universe. God's self-sacrifice on our behalf. Incarnating his mercies and love because of how he values you and me. And of course, thanks to the resurrection, it's the same glory that God wants to share with all of humanity. His own kingdom coming on earth as His Spirit rules in our hearts. And His glory comes to dwell in the earthly temples. You see, the glory of God wants to come and dwell in the temple. Your temple and mine.
So this is talking about you and me here too. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's true glory. Christ in you. That's your only real hope of glory. Beholding the glory of the Lord. You got to pay attention. You got to fix your sight there. Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's our only hope for transformation. It's focusing on Him so that compassion, graciousness, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, faithfulness. That's what God wants to radiate out of us. Do we get it? It's his character, his presence. It's who he is. That's what he wants to come out of us. Husband and wife, parents, children, neighbor to neighbor, co-workers, strangers, enemies. Is the glory of God living in your temple this morning? What glory are you pursuing in your life? Would you come and investigate the glory of this king? No one's glory can compare with what he offers. Will you pray with me? Holy Savior, we praise you for who you are. You are beyond anything that we could ever imagine or invent. We worship you with our minds, with our spirits. We long to worship you with our whole being. May your glory return fully to these temples, our bodies. May we be fully consecrated to you. In Jesus' name.